This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia is helping drive 5G for America. Powered by Nokia Bell Labs, our innovations accelerate the nation's future. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, August 21st. In today's news, President Trump blocks the FDA from regulating coronavirus lab tests, which will make them less reliable. Trump's former chief strategist is charged with wire fraud and money laundering, and his postmaster general plots aggressive moves for right after the election. But first, the big idea. Joe Biden accepted the Democratic presidential nomination here on Thursday night with a call to optimism at a time of national fear, concluding an unusual four days of virtual pageantry with a fireworks show. In a 25-minute speech, the former vice president channeled concern over multiple spontaneous crises facing our country, while urging the American people to choose what he called a path of hope and light. Biden said the current president has cloaked America in darkness for too long. He said there's too much anger, too much fear, and too much division. He promised to draw out the best of us, not the worst. And he said he'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. Biden gave the remarks from an austere ballroom set with American flags, but absent a crowd, except for a few reporters, due to health concerns driven by the coronavirus. The only accompaniment came from cars gathered outside, drive-in style, honking in lieu of applauding. In the silence, Biden outlined his solutions to the pain of those struggling without a job or fearful of losing one. Looking at the camera and offering an attempt at solace, he directly addressed those left behind by the deaths of more than 170,000 Americans from COVID-19. His voice rose while speaking about Trump and the response to the pandemic, Biden said Trump keeps waiting for a miracle that will never come. Biden also spoke directly to young people who have been slow to warm to his candidacy. He noted that their protests for racial justice and civil rights, their advocacy of gun control, and their desire to see the nation deal with the crisis of climate change are priorities he shares. And Biden showed a flash of anger when he turned to foreign policy and recent reports that Russia has placed bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan. In his presidency, he promised America will not turn a blind eye to Russians killing our Marines. The Biden campaign is bracing for a brutal 10 weeks that are expected to be sharply divisive, with Trump already having spent months mocking Biden and criticizing his positions and his family. Republicans will take the national stage starting Monday for their convention, with four nights to showcase a competing vision for the nation. Next Thursday, Trump will deliver his acceptance speech on the White House lawn. The theme of the final night in Wilmington was that Biden cares about regular people, and that he's a thoughtful, decent guy. One of the most powerful moments was an address from a young boy named Braden Harrington, who Biden met in New Hampshire, and to whom he has offered advice for how to manage their shared condition. Stuttering. In a halting but courageous address, Braden recounted how Biden has given him hope. Another emotional climax was a video tribute to Biden's oldest son, Beau, whom he's described as his inspiration. Bo died of brain cancer in 2015. Biden's two living children, Hunter and Ashley, provided the introduction to their father by recounting his attributes and often finishing each other's sentences. 
Hunter Biden has been a central participant in his father's previous campaigns, but has been almost entirely absent from this race. In recent years, he's struggled with substance abuse, including a cocaine addiction, had a relationship with his brother's widow, settled a paternity case with an Arkansas woman, and married a California woman that he'd met just six days earlier. They have since had a child. Hunter didn't refer to any of those struggles on Thursday night, but he said that his dad, Joe, has the strongest shoulder you can ever lean on. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to a close. Number one, the Trump administration this week blocked the Food and Drug Administration from regulating a broad swath of laboratory tests, including for the coronavirus, in a move strongly opposed by the agency. This new policy stunned many health experts and laboratories because of its timing several months into a pandemic. A lot of public health experts are warning that this shift will result in more unreliable coronavirus tests on the market, potentially worsening the testing crisis that has dogged the United States, especially if more people get erroneous results, whether false positives or false negatives. Experts say the change is unlikely to solve current testing problems, which at this point are largely due to shortages of supplies, such as swabs and chemical reagents, because Trump has refused to invoke the Defense Production Act. But supporters cheered the changes long overdue, saying deregulation could help get new tests to market more quickly. They said the FDA review process sharply slowed testing at the beginning of the pandemic, and the new policy will ensure bottlenecks don't recur. The change in policy came as a surprise to many at the FDA and was a point of intense disagreement between Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. Tensions have been rising between these two men for weeks. Several people say that Hahn vociferously fought against the change. The FDA declined to comment. This is just the latest example of health agencies being undercut by their political overseers and Trump loyalists. FDA backers inside and outside the government worry that what's really going on here is that Trump is trying to set them up as the fall guys for the February testing debacle that put our country behind the eight ball and allowed the virus to spread undetected for critical weeks. In February, the Trump administration was relying almost entirely on a test developed by the CDC, which is standard practice during public health crises, but the test was faulty. Indeed, it was terrible. It took three weeks for the FDA to loosen restrictions that allowed other tests, at that time mostly laboratory-developed tests, to come to market. Azar, at that point, was the head of the coronavirus task force. He later got pushed aside, and Vice President Pence was put in charge. FDA backers say this latest move is part of a broader effort by Azar to argue when he gets hauled before Congress that he took action, albeit belatedly, to improve testing. There's widespread concern within the Trump administration, according to current and former officials, about a congressional investigation similar to the 9-11 Commission that will probe everything that's gone wrong with the administration's response. Everyone inside is trying to find ways to cover themselves for when that inquest begins. And Tony Fauci is at home today recovering from vocal cord surgery. In a text message to the Washington Post, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases says his doctors have told him to avoid speaking for a few days and then limit the time he spends doing interviews and other speaking for a week or two. And CDC director Bob Redfield expressed optimism in an interview with the Journal of American Medical Association yesterday that the South has begun to turn the tide against the contagion. But then he said he's concerned about the situation in the Midwest. He said he's 
also concerned about outbreaks in Nebraska and Oklahoma. Number two, Steve Bannon, who ran the Trump campaign at the end of the election in 2016 and spent the first year of the president's term as his chief strategist inside the White House, was taken into custody yesterday morning off the coast of Westbrook, Connecticut, while aboard a 150-foot yacht called the Lady May, owned by Chinese billionaire Guo Wenguai, who was once super close with that country's intelligence service, but is now wanted by authorities in Beijing on charges of fraud, blackmail, and bribery. A judge allowed Bannon, the former chairman of Breitbart News and a one-time Goldman Sachs executive, to be released on a $5 million bond secured by $1.75 million in assets. With the indictment of Bannon, prosecutors have now brought criminal charges against more than half a dozen people who worked for Trump's campaign or administration or advised him personally. Those who have been convicted or pleaded guilty to federal crimes include Trump's former campaign chairman, his deputy campaign chairman, his former personal attorney, and his former national security advisor. In a 23-page indictment, prosecutors say Bannon and another organizer, Air Force veteran Brian Colfage, lied when they claimed that they wouldn't take any compensation as part of a charity campaign called We Build the Wall. Prosecutors say Bannon received more than a million dollars through a nonprofit entity that he controlled. They said they were not going to take any salary, and they said all the money was going to privately construct portions of the wall. Bannon emerged from a federal courthouse in Manhattan, took off his mask, smiled before a bank of television cameras, and said he's being targeted by people who don't want to build the wall. Trump responded to the arrest by saying he felt very badly, but asserted that he has not dealt with Bannon for a very long period of time. Trump also claimed that he felt this fundraising effort was inappropriate and being done for showboating reasons. Those involved in the project have very close ties to the administration. Trump 2020 campaign memorabilia was often pictured on the privately built section of the border wall. Trump's son, Don Jr., was a guest at a symposium hosted by this We Build the Wall group in New Mexico last year. Don Jr. effusively praised the organization as, quote, private enterprise at its finest. He said they were doing better, faster, and cheaper work than anyone else. The president's son's testimonial was featured on the group's website. One of the group's other top advisors, Chris Kobach, the former Kansas Secretary of State, is known for his close ties to the White House, and he told the New York Times last year that he had described the organization to Trump in a personal phone call and the president had given it his blessing. No one from the White House ever pushed back on that at the time. Other advisors to the group have included Eric Prince, the defense contractor who founded Blackwater and is the brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Now, here's where the plot thickens even more. Attorney General Bill Barr knew about the Bannon investigation and was briefed in advance about the arrest, according to law enforcement sources. The case was investigated by the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, but it was charged in court by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. Two months ago, Barr moved to oust Jeffrey Berman as the U.S. Attorney there and replace him on an acting basis with Craig Carpentino, the U.S. Attorney in New Jersey. The Bannon investigation was ongoing at that time, as was an ongoing probe, still going on, involving Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Berman refused to step aside, forcing Trump to fire him, and because of the way that he got fired, under the law, they had to promote Berman's deputy, Audrey Strauss, to replace him on an interim basis. It was Strauss who filed the charges yesterday against Bannon. 
That shakeup two months ago had alarmed congressional Democrats who accused Barr of maneuvering to quash investigations with consequences for the president's personal interests. Berman testified under oath before the House Judiciary Committee that the appointment of the New Jersey U.S. attorney would have been unprecedented, unnecessary, and unexplained, and he said it would have resulted in the delay and disruption of the office's investigations. It's unclear whether these stories are related, but the indictment raises a host of questions, once again, about Barr's role. Number three. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is considering several super aggressive changes to the U.S. Post Service right after the election, once there's less danger that Senate Republicans from rural states will lose their seats because of his meddling. The plans under consideration would touch on all corners of the agency's work. They include raising package shipping rates, particularly when delivering the last mile on behalf of big retailers, setting higher prices for service in Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, curbing discounts for nonprofits, requiring election ballots to use first-class postage, and leasing space in postal service facilities to other government agencies and companies. DeJoy is set to testify later today before a Senate committee, and then on Monday before the House. And while it's possible he'll change the particulars of any plan under discussion after the election, he's made clear that he intends to move full steam ahead in overhauling the service. DeJoy has told associates that he was brought in He's a billionaire mega donor to Republican causes to stem the Postal Service losses and that drastic changes are needed to make the agency solvent in the long term. He told an associate who he spoke with in recent days that he's determined to stay the course and make wholesale changes, even if he has to put it off for a few months. And there are reasons to question whether DeJoy is actually following through on his public announcement from earlier this week that he is suspending any changes until after the election. A senior official at USPS headquarters, has reportedly directed managers not to reconnect mail sorting machines that have been disabled in key battleground states like Pennsylvania. USPS officials also warned employees yesterday not to speak to the press and threatened consequences for those who do. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, August 21st. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Hellman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.